You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Um, it's a great opportunity for me to introduce uh, Professor Mario Rizzo of New York University. Uh, Mario um, is the head of the program on the foundations of the market economy uh, at NYU and also the co-director of the Classical Liberal Institute at NYU. Um, if I could just see a show of hands of students who have either been postdocs or are current fellows at either CLI or the program, please raise your hands. Yeah, it's pretty amazing the influence that Mario has had. Um, you can raise lower him now, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> By the way, the ones that are currently there, for any of you who are on hiring committees, you should hire them. Um, but uh, it's pretty amazing the influence that Mario has had both internally to NYU with working with uh, graduate students and then also what has happened uh, in this role that he has played in helping people begin their careers. And uh, it's just really something else. Um, uh, he's a distinguished fellow of our program here at George Mason University. Um, he is also most recently the author of uh, Escaping Paternalism, Rationality, Behavioral Economics, and Public Policy, along with Glenn Whitman, um, which was published by Cambridge University Press and is an award-winning book, and I recommend everyone to get it. And the one thing I'm going to say, the final thing I'm going to say about Mario is that I had the good fortune to work alongside Mario as an assistant professor. And when I first got out of graduate school and for the first eight years of my career, and uh, I don't know if I've ever publicly acknowledged this, but I couldn't imagine having a better uh, mentor and senior colleague to sort of help you try to begin your career. It was amazing. And I greatly uh, appreciate that time. So anyway, please uh, help me in welcoming Professor Mario Rizzo. Thank you, Pete, for that um, introduction. Um, what I want to, before I go into this uh, talk, I, I want to say something about how it is that I uh, have become so interested in William James. Uh, several years ago, uh, I was asked by the um, Cambridge Journal of Economics uh, to write a paper uh, on the uh, 100th anniversary of um, Frank Knight's Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit. So I was um, thinking about, I, so I agreed, and I was thinking about, you know, what could be a new angle? After all, how many articles have there been on risk, uncertainty, and profit? And so what I did was I, I reread uh, uh, Frank Knight, and I noticed that there were several uh, uh, citations to uh, the psychologist philosopher William James. And, uh, and so I followed out uh, some of those uh, uh, citations and uh, got into reading William James. And I was amazed at how much Frank Knight actually took from William James, at least in his earlier work, and I think also in his later work in, in, in a different way. Uh, and so I explored William James uh, much more thoroughly and wrote an article for the, uh, along with uh, Malta Dole, uh, on the um, relationship between William James and, uh, and Frank Knight. And I think uh, it's, it was a very instructive uh, uh, period of time doing the research on that. So I got into William James, and the more I read about William James, uh, the more I was convinced that he was somebody that those of us in the Austrian camp, but also the classical liberal camp, and just really anybody interested in social science uh, and in psychology should take another look at what William James had to say. You, you might know, those of you who have read The Sensory Order, that one of the people he, he attributes uh, as inspiration 
to his work, uh, Hayek does, uh, is William James. And uh, there are so many influences of William James in the, uh, the sensory order that uh, I think that's another uh, thing to, to, to explore. Uh, okay, so let me begin uh, William James' anti-paternalist. Now, William James did not have a comprehensive political philosophy. Uh, he had certain political ideas, uh, but he had a philosophy, a psychology, uh, which says something about human meaning and human well-being. And uh, he did express himself in a number of cases, a few, on certain issues regarding paternalism. And so putting all that together, what I think I've come up with is not only uh, a report on William James's explicit attitudes toward paternalism, but also to show why those attitudes are not just his personal sentiments, but actually follow from his, uh, his system uh, of, of thought. And uh, furthermore, that much of what he said could be viewed as a refutation of today's uh, behavioral uh, paternalism uh, before the term was ever coined. So we begin, uh, let's see, I know, yes, I know how to do this. All right, so here are the brothers James, uh, Henry James uh, on the left and William James on the right. Um, there is a saying, and nobody seems to know who was the first to say this, but there is a saying that Henry wrote novels like a psychologist while William wrote psychology texts like a novelist. Um, James's uh, language is uh, beautiful. Uh, it's an, almost inspiring sometimes. Um, but I think it also expresses his passion and his way of looking at things. So for the first half, well, first half or one, or one third of this talk, I'm gonna quote from James a, a number of times. Uh, to give you a sense, a feeling of uh, what, he was, uh, what he was like. Uh, as you can see, he died in 1910. So he died before the full flowering of pragmatism. He's often credited, he and uh, uh, Peirce are uh, often credited uh, with uh, the founding of uh, of uh, pragmatism, uh, along with a little bit later, John Dewey. Um, but James died before all of these developments took place within pragmatism uh, that lead many of us as classical liberals or, or, or anything else uh, to feel a certain reluctance to embrace uh, pragmatism. But this is William James and it's not John Dewey, and it's not any, any of the others who, who followed in the uh, tradition. All right, so James was a psychologist, and, uh, but he's more than just a psychologist. Um, this quotation from um, Cheryl Misak in a book called Cambridge Pragmatism, I think expresses uh, what a lot of people think about, about James's psychology work. Uh, James's 1890, The Principles of Economics, is a classic, she says. It may be the most important book in the whole history of psychology, not only demarcating psychology from philosophy, but also making points about the relationship between the mind and the brain that are still important today. Its lasting memes include plasticity of neural matter, the stream of thought, the idea that every perception is in part an interpretation or a creation. Give you some sense of James's, what I'm gonna call moral liberalism, and liberalism in the way we use the term uh, here. Uh, first, uh, the first two are quotes from, from William James himself. So in one article, he summarizes uh, what he has said, and he says, the result of all these considerations absolutely forbids us to be forward in pronouncing on the meaninglessness of forms of existence other than our own. Hands off, neither the whole truth nor the whole of good is revealed to any single observer. It is enough to ask of each of us that he should be faithful to his own opportunities and make the most of his own blessings 
without presuming to regulate the rest of the vast field. And then again, in another essay, he says, the first thing to learn in intercourse with others is non-interference with their own particular ways of being happy, provided those ways do not as uh, assume to interfere by violence with others. Now, those two quotations, I think, you know, if this man is not a liberal in our sense, uh, I don't know what, uh, what he would have to say to, to be considered liberal. Um, but he was also more than just tolerant um, in a political sense. But as this next quote says that William James, by Walter Lippmann, William James was perhaps the most tolerant man of our generation. He felt he, for him tolerance was not simply a kind of steely permitting of, of activities or opinions that you didn't agree with, but an attempt to really to understand them. Uh, not necessarily to approve, but to really understand, to get into what the other person or persons uh, are all about. So let me give some examples now of uh, his anti-paternalism. Now, remember that uh, William James was a medical doctor. That's the only degree he ever had. He did not have a bachelor's degree because he didn't really finish Harvard College. Uh, he didn't have a PhD. Uh, he had a, uh, certainly didn't have a PhD or any degree in philosophy, though he was a professor of philosophy for a while and then became a professor of psychology. So. But he was educated in a very broad way. His uh, father was a kind of um, uh, intellectual, a uh, sort of non-affiliated with the university, but a private sort of intellectual who knew a lot of the important people of the day, intellectuals of the day, had discussions with them, and uh, he himself wrote things. Uh, and uh, he took his children uh, all around the world. Uh, they, uh, he was looking for the best place for them to get an education, couldn't decide really where. So they wound up going to Europe and all sorts of places and, and learning a lot in, in the process. Okay, so he's a doctor and uh, Harvard Medical School. And he opposes the, uh, an act called the Massachusetts Medical Registration Act. Now, what did this act uh, do? Well, what was the proposal uh, in, the, in the act? The act was supposed to um, require that in order to practice medicine in the state of Massachusetts, you either had to have a uh, degree from a respectable medical school, of course, Harvard would be included, um, or you had to pass an examination. If you didn't do either, you could not practice medicine. Now, in today's world, to oppose that sounds pretty much like Milton Friedman and opposition to occupational licensure. And he opposed it. Why did he oppose it? That's kind of interesting. And some of it is reminiscent of a time gone by uh, in the 19th century. Um, but listen to what he had to say. This paternalism would be a grotesque and puerile anomaly in a state where every man, he's talking about Massachusetts, in a state where every man has from time immemorial has been able to lose his health and with it his fortune, his life and soul, if he pleases, without the state either interfering or giving relief. If the word sacred can be applied to any personal right, surely this right to treat one's own body as one chooses may claim to be that title. The bill limits that sacred right and violates it insofar as the principles of personal liberty which are the life, uh, insofar as the, uh, and violates it insofar as it violates the principles of personal liberty, which are the life breath of our state. So he's saying, look, right? 
If you can do pretty much what you want in our state and lose your fortune, lose your life, lose your soul, and the state unto interfere, doesn't interfere, why not allow you to do what you want with your body? Uh, go see whoever you want for treatment without the state interfering. Now, there's a nuance here. Um, James did not oppose a law which said that if you say you're an MD, then you have to have a degree from a medical school or presumably pass this, this test. If you say that, but if you don't say that and you say you're a healer, right? Go ahead, do whatever you want. Pres pres prescribe the herbs or, or do the faith healing. Uh, one of the reasons that he was um, presupposed, uh, predisposed to this kind of uh, viewpoint was because at the time he was thinking a lot about psychological illnesses and psychological difficulties. Uh, and uh, he did not want the medical profession to have a monopoly of the treatment of that, but also physical things. He, he knew about Christian science uh, and, he, and uh, other faith healing approaches. And he said, you know, they work for some people. He says, we don't know why they work, but they work for some people. So let's allow them. The second example uh, doesn't immediately strike one as a, an example of paternalism, but the way it was, uh, the issue was treated, uh, it, is, uh, it can be viewed as an example of paternalism. This was uh, as a result of the Spanish-American War, uh, the United States got control of the Philippines. Uh, so the question is, are we going to, you know, what are we going to do with them? We're going to let them be independent or, or keep them as some sort of colony? Um, and um, the arguments that uh, were given, or at least some of the arguments that were given, were paternalistic arguments. Uh, and he was only addressing those, not addressing any issues that might have to do with, you know, national defense or something of that sort. So these were paternalistic issues. So he characterizes uh, the arguments that William Howard Taft made, because Taft at the time was Secretary of War, and Taft was in charge, really, of the Philippine situation. So this is James's characterization of Taft's argument. We must give the Filipino true liberty instead of the false liberty he aspires to. We are to be missionaries of civilization and to bear the white man's burden, painful as it often is. We must sow our ideals, plant our order, impose our God. In response, William James says, we Americans surely do not monopolize all the possible forms of goodness. Any national life, however turbulent, should be respected, which exhibits ferments of progress human individualities, even small ones, struggling in the direction of enlightenment. So give these people a chance to have self-government, to rule themselves. Don't assume that your system, Mr. Taft, is the only one that uh, is a valid way of living and they must pursue the American way in, in, in the Philippines. Uh, Taft said, well, maybe we'll give them their independence in 50 or 100 years. He wasn't so far off on the 50 element because they did get their independence in uh, 1946. Now, James is not pure. Who of, who of us are pure? Uh, there was an exception, or at least, this was, he advocated compulsory national service for young men. And the case was made on paternalistic grounds. The youth needed the martial virtues, but without war. They needed to extend their experiences. This is kind of argument gives, I'll, I'll put more context in a minute. But he wrote an article called The Moral Equivalent of War, 
right? And what he, what he meant was that actually war and the training and, and, and the discipline of war has certain virtues. Of course, it has a lot of vices too, but it has certain virtues. So why don't we figure out a system to convey those virtues of determination, of planning, of, of, uh, of dedication to a cause in some way that doesn't involve war? So he comes up with this. My speculation about what the exception is, and maybe I'm just being kind, <clears throat> kind to him, but the problem he saw, one of the problems he saw was, you know, the kids, the, the students who went to Harvard were, were not poor kids in those days. They didn't have their, you know, uh, inclusion uh, policies in place in those days. So uh, they were pretty well off kids. And he felt that it was their very isolation from people of other classes, of other backgrounds, other system, styles of life that contributed to their intolerance, for their feeling that their way of life was the only one of significant meaning. Their way of life was the only way that people should live and that uh, People who chose otherwise were not living worthwhile lives. So paradoxically, in order to increase toleration and decrease the amount of paternalistic attitude that many people had in these upper and, upper and middle class uh, environments, compulsory national service, uh, which would force people to spend some time with people of other classes, or helping the poor, uh, cleaning up stuff, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff that uh, uh, would, would, would get them to see how other people live. And so the paradox is this one instance of paternalism Right, because make them better, more tolerant people was designed to reduce paternalism. That's my hypothesis. Uh, it doesn't necessarily justify what he advocated, but it shows that you know his his advocacy well, had a an important uh, direction and was in the service of something which he thought was a generalized tolerance and anti-paternalism. So some people ask, you know, is this just all these ideas that I just talked about now, is this just his personal disposition? Uh, Walter Whitman, uh, Lippmann said he was the most tolerant man of our generation. Uh, does that mean simply that that was the kind of person he was? He was a sensitive person. He um, reacted strongly to the suffering uh, of other people. He hated cruelty. Uh, I, I gave a statement here, uh, or at least a paraphrase from Ralph Barton Perry, who was his, one of his students, but also his chief biographer uh, and um, uh, related James's ideas in a comprehensive uh, two-volume uh, biography, uh, intellectual biography, uh, um, back in the 19... Uh, 30s, I believe. Anyway, uh, Perry says that uh, it's not part of uh, his philosophy. He says it because he had no developed political philosophy. Um, another historian, uh, George Sabine, uh, has the curious idea that it was kind of medically induced. Um, the, at the time he wrote these pieces about um, the Spanish American, uh, the Philippines and the Spanish American War, and um, his general anti paternalist uh, period, he was uh, com commanded by his own doctor to, uh, to take a long period of bed rest. He had a heart condition. Um, and so Sabine is saying that. Um, well, this period of bed rest made him extra sensitive, and uh, so therefore he exhibited these attitudes, but it doesn't really reflect anything about his philosophy. 
I, I want to reject uh, the idea that e either it's just because he has a sensitive nature or because bed rest may, made him more sensitive, um, and try to show how it falls out of his philosophical and psychological framework. In doing so, if you listen carefully, you're going to see so many similarities with what I would call the broad Hayekian uh, framework or, or system of ideas. Okay, so what's his normative standard for well-being? That's the first question we have to ask. Um, and we can state it in a series of sort of propositions. First of all, all value derives from the interests of the individual. And he calls these demands or claims. The essence of good is simply to satisfy a demand. Demands do not have a single motive like pleasure or wealth. They could be anything. All demands are prima facie respectable. Prima facie respectable. And critically, the good that is the satisfaction of demand must be realized in someone's consciousness. There are no values in the air, right? A, a, the good must be felt in a sense. Um, you'll see why this is important uh, shortly. Reflecting on just those propositions, uh, we get back to uh, Barton Perry. Um, individualism is fundamental. This is um, Perry's paraphrase of things that uh, James wrote. The principle is clear. Value derives ultimately from the interests of the individual. And the social whole is justified by the inclusion and reconciliation of its individual parts. So I put in parentheses coordination. Individualism is fundamental. Somebody... A philosopher, um, I'm not sure who it was, so I, I, I don't want to mention a name, but a philosopher once asked, answered my question, which was, uh, what's the difference between uh, William James and, and John Dewey, who's hated by so many uh, conservatives and, and, and liberals too sometimes, uh, in our sense of the word liberal? And he says, well, every time James says the individual, Dewey says society. That tells you something about the evolution of, of uh, James's ideas later on in the, in the um, pragmatic uh, movement. Okay, moral choice is about personal meaning. Now, all goods are potentially moral goods. All choosing has potential moral significance. Now, what is, so then what is a moral decision? Uh, my decision, uh, most likely, my decision to drink tea rather than coffee, not a moral decision, all right? But a moral decision involves the pursuit of some non-habitual ideal for the improvement of oneself or of others. So it's moving away from sort of habitual ways of acting, they don't, even if they're good ways of acting, in his way of thinking, they don't constitute moral uh, choices. Moral choices are departing from a habitual ideal, so they involve effort, right? Uh, choosing when difficult, he says, is especially significant. It requires an active uh, effort of attention, and this makes truly voluntary and it makes it truly voluntary and, and morally relevant. So there are different degrees of moral choices, right? Uh, it can be anything like uh, moving to a, a new diet, or it could be as, as dramatic and life-changing as um, you know, hiding Jews in your basement from the Nazis. Uh, the more important, the more life-changing a moral decision is, the more it changes who you are. But even minor moral decisions uh, go to 
transforming the person into something that the decisions uh, 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 relate to or, or, or his change is constituted by the decision. Uh, James frequently says, we are continually spinning our own fates. Um, okay, and so if you say that a self is really being chosen when you, when you make moral decisions, uh, you see, okay, this is the source of deep significance. And I put cross-reference Knight and Buchanan. Now, meaning is made, it's not given to you. Uh, the process of choosing values or acting upon chosen values involves experimentation. There are no ready-made or abstract rules, he says. Solutions are context-specific and inventive. It is individual. Now, what does it mean by experimentation? Well, you do things and you see what the results are, right? And so you learn from doing. Um, he is oftentimes uh, insisting that simple beliefs or simple plans, unless they manifest in action, are not really meaningful, right? All of these are perceptions, our choices, our preferences, our beliefs, our propensities to act. So the meaning that we get out of these actions uh, are, are not handed to an individual, right? They're made by the individual uh, in terms of the context of that individual's life. We make meaning in, in, our, in, our, um, in our behavior, in our choices. But the process is also social, right? The experimentation is not only an individual experimentation, but it involves the give and take with others uh, as moral equals. So we, uh, you know, we make decisions, other people have opinions about what we do uh, or what we're planning to do. And that interaction, uh, when we treat other people as moral equals, that is to say, of having something worthwhile to say to us, is, a part of, is part of our moral testing, our testing of our ideas and our, uh, and our uh, uh, of preferences or choices. So James has a knowledge problem. Um, let me uh, depart a minute from the, uh, from the slide. Um, those of you who, who are familiar with Hayek will know that Hayek uh, was also, was said many times, especially in the counter-revolution of science, that we need to see things as the acting individual sees them. Right? And James says exactly the same thing. He uses a somewhat different uh, uh, an analogy. He says that a, stock, uh, a, a stack of wood uh, can be something that you use to heat your home or something to do, use to build a barn. It depends upon what your purposes are. The agent point of view is important. Uh, in everything that James talks about. And he criticizes psychologists because he says they presume that their point of view, you can read Economist, that the psychologist believes that their point of view is the correct one and that we can ignore the agent point of view. But that they're deluded, they're, they're misinformed, they're stupid, whatever. But we psychologists have the correct point of view. So the agent point of view is important not only for questions of perception and knowledge, but also, as he said earlier, from the, from the perspective of values and the emergence of values. So values, going back to this knowledge problem, emerge from individual experience. Uh, they are rooted in personal feelings. Now that's something that some people will find controversial, but maybe uh, those who go with Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments would not find it so odd that our values could emerge from our sentiments, from our feelings. All knowledge is based on limitation of attention and experience, right? We can't attend to everything at once. Our experience also affects 
how we see the world uh, and how we perceive things. So limitations of attention, uh, limitations and the, of experience. Everybody's experience is always partial, right? We never see the whole thing. The synoptic view is not something anybody has. So we have this partial experience. We have limitations of our attention. So all of our knowledge is partial. Now, our individual values affect our judgments about others. But our partial knowledge and vision creates a certain blindness about, the, about other people's values and meanings. He has an article called On a Certain Blindness in Human Beings. Right, the very partiality of our own views that are made necessary by, by reality, essentially, uh, is also responsible for our incomplete understanding of what gives value to other people. Uh, he says, for most of us, and I, I, he meant his audience, uh, I think it was an address that he gave at some university, um, but he says, for most of us, and we can apply it here, for most of us, keeping out of the gutter is not a particularly meaningful or moral decision to keep out of the gutter. But for some people, keeping out of the gutter is a monumental decision. And, you know, if we don't understand where other people are coming from, we don't see the importance of some of that. Another example, maybe, maybe more convincing, I don't know, um, is that he was going through the, um, some countryside at one point, and he noticed that uh, trees had been cut down and uh, plants had been ripped out. And uh, it, it, it looked, from his point of view, as a you know, upper middle class uh, uh, academic, uh, that they had made a mess of this area. But then he saw what had happened. These people built little shacks, which were the only home they had. And they, what they looked at, when they looked at the cut stump, what they saw was an achievement that they had made. You know, they looked at it with pride because I cut that tree down and with the wood, I made this house for myself and now I can live in a house that protects me from the rain, et cetera, et cetera. So while the middle class said, you know, they spoiled the natural environment, they found meaning there that was, we were blind to. So we're blind, we can try to do better. And we can do better, but the key is don't interfere. All right, so now uh, is James completely oblivious to the fact that people may not be acting in the way that they themselves think best, right? So far we've said, you know, we have partial knowledge, we have a certain blindness, we're intolerant, that puts all the burden on the, the observer, in a sense, uh, the, th the third party who's looking at these people. Uh, but it, does it really imply that, you know, they know best and everything they do is fine and, uh, you know, there's no problem there? No. He has this concept of the obstructed will and so to complete my picture of James, I want to say that he was fully aware that people do not always uh, do what is best for themselves, even their own lights. And what's the reason? Uh, the reason is that habitual actions are usually easy, uh, and they're usually fine. Uh, they serve us well. But sometimes doing the better requires effort and mental, mental energy that people don't have. Nevertheless, he says, even failed attempts to do better convey information about the whys and wherefores of the failure. And these, this information is finely tuned to the particular situation of the individual. He sees, he or she sees his own failure in his own context and learns something invaluable 
from that. But beyond that, James says, hands off. Now, why? Well, what's the alternative? And this is very, if somebody, if people are familiar with the, the current uh, behavioral literature, there's something called boost as opposed to nudge. Boost is the idea of improving people's decision-making capabilities in a general way, not nudging them toward any specific outcome, but uh, trying to just make them better decision makers in, in general, so they're more literate about uh, financial matters or uh, uh, things of that sort. Uh, James is, is broader than that. He's thinking about people who, who, who know what to do. They know the better, but they do the worse, right? So what happens to these people? So he lists in Principles of Psychology, a number of uh, suggestions. He says, we, the people who are trying to change their behavior, they should launch themselves uh, with as strong and decided initiative as possible. Make it clear what exactly you want to do. Never suffer an exception to your new rule or your new uh, way of being. Never suffer an exception to occur until the new habit is securely rooted in your life. Third, seize the very first possible opportunity to act on every resolution you make and on every emotional prompting you may experience in the direction of the habits you aspire to gain. So not just thinking, not just making resolutions, but doing. Keep the faculty, and this is a very interesting one, keep the faculty of effort alive in you by a little gratuitous exercise every day. What he th he's thinking of this exercise is, uh, consists of doing every day or two something for no other reason than you would rather not do it. All right? Now, what could that be? I hate giving money to beggars in the street. All right, so let me do it, right? Or, you know, I, I, I really dislike doing the dishes before I go to bed. Hey, why don't you do it? Even though those things are not directly related to what it is you're trying to improve about yourself, what they do is they put you in a state of breaking habits and, and, and cultivating mental energy through a certain exercise. He also recommended, uh, first time kind of innovative, uh, Hatha Yoga, breathing exercises, even Ignatius Loyola's spiritual exercises, fasting, mind cures, so forth. All right, that's William James, uh, more or less in his own words. So now what I want to do in the concluding uh, few minutes that we have left is I want to contrast William James with uh, behavioral economics, specifically the heuristics and biases uh, version of behavioral economics. So what I put in these columns are the characteristics, James, and then behavioralism. All right, so individualism. Uh, James is both methodologically and ethically an individualist. Um, so what does that involve? It involves emphasizing different points of view. He says, this is almost a quotation from him, maybe it is a quotation. Individuals before family, before church, before country, right? Just, you go to higher and higher levels of collective associations, but individuals before them all, before family, before church, before country. All moral, interpreted widely, goods are based on individual interests or demands. Uh, there is no, uh, there is no valuation in the air. He, he compares some people who think of, who, who believe in absolute values uh, independently of their uh, consequences uh, uh, on individual interests. 
uh, as um, astronomers, astronomers viewing the aurora borealis. It's just something up there, and uh, it's beautiful. It's no relation to human beings. Uh, behavioralism de-emphasizes differences, right? There's the representative individual is pretty much king, although there's some change uh, occurring in that. We talk about aggregate outcomes, uh, not outcomes for individuals. All goods are depend upon the true preferences of individuals, right? Uh, preferences in the air, uh, because nobody, the, the funny thing about true preferences is that they're counterfactual preferences. Their preferences you would have if you were different in a different situation or a different person. So whose preferences are there? They're nobody's preferences. They're preferences in the air. They're an abstraction. Didn't like that kind of thing. Subjectivism. We begin with our own consciousness, right? The, the, first, uh, the, the first fact of psychology is I think, I feel, Experience is primary. That's where he believes psychology has to start, from consciousness. Now, good thing he didn't live to see behaviorism, not behavioralism, but behaviorism, which abolished the, the, basically the human mind out of psychology and wanted to observe only uh, objective behavior. Anyway, uh, subjectivism, begin with consciousness. Now, except for... Uh, the work of Kahneman in his earlier days, feelings are really uh, de-emphasized in, um, in behavioral economics. Uh, rationality gets a wide inclusive concept of um, rationality. Uh, he says that uh, irrationality is the Prius. What do he mean by that? Well, if we see something we think is irrational, he says that's not the end. That's the beginning. That means we don't understand it. Let's look. Let's see what people are trying to uh, accomplish. Um, rationality is always relative to a framework. Uh, it's practical, not theoretical, at least as far as um, non-scientific endeavors are concerned. Values, they're from the bottom up. Ethical uh, systems and standards. Uh, of the philosophers are secondary and derivative. Uh, experimentation is important uh, in, in, uh, in deciding uh, how to act. We, we try things out and we see what their consequences are in particular circumstances. All values are subject uh, to revision. Behavioralism, values are formed, expressed under purified conditions. Uh, not closely tied to action, because counterfactual preferences, you can't act on them since they're counterfactual. Uh, the correct structure of values is determined by the analyst. Transitivity is determined by the economist and other consistency uh, considerations, not from the bottom up or from the top down. Well-being. Now, this is interesting. Um, Well-being is felt. It's not an objective state. It's self-fashioned, as we said, meaning you have to give meaning yourself. And uh, there's also the question of the lack of the spectator knowledge, right? Uh, what constitutes your well-being uh, as an individual? So it has to be felt. Count, the satisfaction of, count, of counterfactual preferences is not felt because they're counterfactual. Okay, in the behavioralism, True preference satisfactions is counterfactual, not necessarily felt, knowledge problem minimized. Um, the obstructed will, right? The will to do better is frustrated by habitual behaviors, and there is a certain similarity with, with Kahneman that I, uh, I must note. Uh, the struggle to overcome uh, habitual behaviors that you don't like is a learning experience, and we learn from, from, it, from failure. <coughs> Uh, behavioralism, uh, they usually mo model uh, lack of willpower as present bias, uh, but if you look at the present bias uh, representation in the model, uh, there's no room for learning in, in any of that. So uh, that's an important difference. Okay, so finally, uh, remedies for failed attempts. 
uh, at uh, bettering your situation and improving yourself and uh, to achieve your own goals uh, in, a, in a better way. Uh, James recommends what I'm calling generalized boosting, uh, increasing moral energy. He says that one of the most important things to do in life is to increase our mental energy. He says that we use very little of our potential mental, mental energy. And so all of his suggestions about increasing mental energy apply really across the board to, to everyone. Uh, but they are intrinsically part of how people improve and how people uh, achieve their, their goals and meaning more effectively in life. And uh, behavioralism generally involves uh, some kind of government uh, action to nudge people in the right direction without necessarily increasing their moral energy. And in fact, one of the uh, advantages that is uh, uh, claimed for nudging is that uh, it doesn't require any energy on the part of people. They can you just nudge them into something and uh, they don't have to exercise any any uh, any energy or any uh, willpower or develop any uh, increase in their uh, knowledge of the situation. They're just uh, nudged into something better, and and so it's better, and that's all welfare consists of, and that's the end of the show. Okay, so in closing, um, I clearly set up a lot of this with the intent to show the commonalities and the similarities of the thinking of William James with those of many of the thinkers that uh, people in this room are familiar with, uh, especially Hayek, but also to a certain extent, uh, Adam Smith. And uh, the idea is not to turn William James necessarily into a, a classical liberal, because as I said, he did not have a political philosophy uh, he also, uh, maybe he was some kind of ordo-liberal, I don't know. Uh, he hated bigness. Uh, he hated big industry, big universities, big everything. He couldn't stand bigness. Now, I, as liberals have a problem with bigness. On the one hand, we like sort of natural bigness, but we don't like unnatural bigness. So maybe we can agree with James at least part of the way. Um, yeah, but the reason he didn't like bigness all stems from the individual is primary. He doesn't like institutions that smash the individual. Um, and that's kind of so important to his, his worldview. And it follows from his psychology, because his psychology is an individualistic psychology, but it's not an individualistic psychology in the sense of the atomized individual, right? It has social component. We test our moral ideas. Uh, other people react. We talk to other people. We treat other people as moral equals. We learn from other people. So it is not the atomized individual by any means, uh, but nevertheless, it is the individual. And so the individual is fundamental. Um, and I hope that uh, this uh, little talk on William James convinces you to, to read some of him, because I think he's an important person in the realm of the ideas that we want to uh, promote. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.